Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. to talk more about the context of John chapters 13 through 16. I'm going to talk about it in a moment, Um, but briefly, this is Jesus in the last few days of his life, and this is Jesus with his 12 disciples, and he's spending uh, intimate, close time with them right before he ascends back to heaven, Um, and he's trying to equip them. He's trying to encourage them in these, his last few days. Before he dies, is raised, and then is raised even further to heaven. So let me read these verses for us. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 28. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom Jesus spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to that disciple to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back, asked Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that Judas should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How can someone tell... Who you follow. How can someone tell 
who you follow. If you follow a certain musician or band, people can tell because you play their music. Or when they have a concert at DTE or Fox Theater, you buy tickets. So people can see, people can hear your enthusiasm for whatever band or musician. Or if you follow a certain car company like GM, if for whatever reason you are loyal to them, well, people can tell because you always buy GM cars. You would never compromise and buy foreign. You are committed. You are a follower of a Motor City company, and people can observe your followership by seeing how you put your money where your mouth is and buy GM cars. Or... If you are a follower of the Detroit Lions, if you are a devoted fan of the silver and blue, people can tell because you are always disappointed (laughs) and miserable from defeat. Your faithfulness to the Lions comes through because your spirit is low, your expectations are low, and your humility is sky high. I'm just kidding. This is is our year, without a doubt. (laughs) This is the year. My point is that people can tell who we follow by the concerts you attend, the car you drive, the team colors you wear. People can hear, people can see and discern who you follow in life. But what about when it comes to following Jesus? How can people tell when it's Jesus who we follow? Is it a Jesus t-shirt that all Christ followers get to wear? Or is it a a cross necklace that we put on? Is it the little fish emblem that you stick onto your GM car? Or is it by attending church or giving a tithe? How can people tell Jesus is who we follow? Well, this morning we're continuing in our sermon series, The Follower's Trail Guide navigating the path of Jesus. And through this series of messages, we're walking through, as I said, John chapters 13 through 16, this section of Scripture. It's known as the farewell discourse because these four chapters occur on the Passover holiday right before Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and then exalted to heaven. So Jesus is about to physically leave his disciples, and thus he wants to prepare them. He wants to equip them one final time before he leaves. Last week we saw how Jesus brought together the disciples for the Passover feast, but before they eat the meal, Jesus performs this incredibly selfless act of service. He washes their feet. And he gives them this amazing visual lesson on the importance of service, that the way of Jesus is a path of humble service. And in this morning's message, this same feast continues, and Jesus shifts the focus only slightly from service to love. And he instructs his disciples, that's how the world knows you follow Jesus by the way you love other people who follow Jesus. He says this with crystal clarity in verses 33 through 35. He speaks to his disciples and he says, Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. Only a little while before I leave. He says, you're going to seek me 
And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. You remember the angels on Easter Sunday morning. He is not here. He's gone. He says, you're not going to find me. Since I'm going to be gone, verse 34, I give you a new commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. So again, Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm going to be exalted back to heaven. So since I'm going to be gone, I'm leaving you this new commandment to love one another. The idea being that even though Jesus is physically absent... We, as his followers, will still be lovingly present in each other's lives. And this love that we have for one another is the distinguishing mark of a disciple. Our love for fellow Christ followers is how the world will know that we, in fact, are Christ followers. And it's interesting that Jesus calls his command for us to love one another a new commandment. Many have wondered, why would he call it new? Because in the Old Testament, God speaks through Moses in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and he calls Israel to love one another. He tells them to love your neighbors. And Jesus himself cites this Old Testament command in several places throughout the Gospels. So in what sense is the command to love one another a new commandment? Well, what biblical scholars think is going on here is that Jesus is linking the commandment to love with the establishment of the new covenant. So we know from the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that it was at this Passover feast where Jesus instituted the communion meal, the Lord's Supper. And for example, in Luke, he refers to the cup of the Lord's Supper as the new covenant in my blood. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. So Jesus was establishing the new covenant and his new covenant people at this same Passover meal. And John doesn't share a description of the Lord's Supper. John doesn't share about that new covenant meal. Perhaps it's because he knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already covered those details. But John does share with us the new covenant command. The new command, the number one commandment for this newly established community is that we love one another. Jesus says, this is how the world is going to know you are my followers, that you are my new covenant people by the way you love each other. But as we look closer at this supper time scene, we see that Jesus Followers are struggling to follow him, specifically when we look at the example of Judas and Peter. Despite all the time they'd spent with Jesus, despite all the instruction that they'd heard, they were still struggling with following Christ. So let's look at each one of these guys in turn. First, we learn from Judas that the self-interested follow Satan. The self-interested follow Satan. So after the foot washing and after teaching the disciples about service, it says that Jesus began to feel troubled in spirit. 
So he's disturbed, he's upset, and he shares why. He says in verse 21, one of you will betray me. So most of the time in life when we are betrayed or when we are stabbed in the back, we don't know that it's going to happen. That's one of the things that makes betrayal so hard because it often catches us off guard and shocks us. Well, Jesus is not caught off guard by his betrayal. He knows God's plan for him, and he knows the scriptures that predict the Messiah would be betrayed. So he knows he's going to be betrayed. Nevertheless, he is still troubled, and he is still disturbed in his heart that this is going to happen. Well, when the disciples hear this prediction, they unsurprisingly start looking around at one another suspiciously and thinking to themselves, who's he talking about? Well, Peter Assertive as he is, he kind of motions to John, the disciple sitting closest to Jesus. And Peter tells John, hey, ask Jesus who he's talking about. So John asks in verse 25, Lord, who is it? In other words, who's going to betray you? Jesus replies to the question stating that it's the one to whom he will give the next morsel of bread for dinner. He then turns and gives the piece of bread to Judas Iscariot. So think about this scene. Put yourself in Judas' shoes for a moment. Jesus has just stated that he knows he's going to be betrayed. And he stated that he knows it's Judas who will betray him. So Judas is caught, dead to rights. Judas' plan to betray Jesus is exposed It's brought to the light. There's no more hiding. So this is Judas' chance to confess. This is his chance to admit what he's done, plotting Jesus' arrest. This is his chance to ask for mercy before this happens. One of the funniest parts of being a parent of young kids are those times when you catch them just red-handed. I mean, the evidence is plain as day, but they act completely innocent. They act totally normal because in truth, if they're young enough, they don't really know that they're not innocent. Like earlier this summer, I walked across our young daughter, Sage, in the living room eating with her hands out of a tub of peanut butter. And I mean, the evidence was all over her face. It was, it was all over her hands. There was a, there was a sleeve of Jiff going up her arm. There was no escaping the truth. And it was hilarious and cute because she's a young child. But it is not so funny otherwise. It is not funny when the sin of adultery is exposed. It is not cute when financial deceit and corruption is brought to light, and it is certainly not hilarious when Judas here is about to betray and abandon the Lord. So he needs to confess. He needs to own up to it, and he has a chance to. But John tells us in verse 27 that Judas took the bread, and it was at that point that Satan entered into him. There seems to be something about taking the bread from Jesus 
that was a decisive point for Judas when he gave in to Satan's full influence in his life. In selfishness, Judas was willing to take Jesus' bread, but he was not willing to confess his sin. He was not willing to turn from his sin and follow Jesus. It's been said before that secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. Secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. And we see this exact truth play out right here in the life of Judas. Even when Jesus calls out his sin, like an ignorant child, Judas acts like he did nothing wrong. And he continues to give in to his dark impulses and live for himself. But what about you? I don't know what your sin is and you don't know what my sin may be, but God knows. No matter how far we run from Him, no matter how deep in darkness we may cover ourselves, God knows the selfish, sinful things we try to keep from Him. The author of Hebrews says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 13, God sees all of our lives. God sees the things we try to cover up from everybody else, and we will give an account to him. Church, let's not fool ourselves. Let's not live in denial. Let's bring our sin to the light. Let's bring our sin to to God, let's confess, let's live openly before Him and before one another in community. This is the way of Christ, and it's the path that Judas, right here, is walking away from. And so I want to encourage you if you are on the edge of the cliff, if you are one step from walking away from Jesus. I want to warn you through the example of Judas. His life completely unravels from this point forward. He's left with thinking the only hope for him is to take his own life. And that's exactly what he does. But I not only want to warn you, I want to encourage you There was mercy in Jesus' heart for Judas. If he would have confessed, if he would have given up, if he would have surrendered, Jesus would have gladly welcomed him with grace. But away he goes. Away he goes. But there's another character in this story, and he too... He too falters at following Jesus, but in a slightly different way. Judas shows us that the self-interested follow Satan, but Peter shows us that the self-confident follow the flesh. Man, Peter too? Come on! 
I know about Judas. I mean, nobody names their kid Judas, but Peter, right? He's a namesake. He's a hero. Kind of. The self-confident follow the flesh. So you remember from verse 33, Jesus says to the disciples, you will seek me, but because I'm about to be exalted to heaven, where I am going, you cannot come. He says, I'm leaving. Then in verses 34 and 35, he gives the disciples the command to love one another. Then in verse 36, Peter responds, but he totally neglects Jesus' love commandment. He says, hold up, Jesus. Go back, go back, go back. Maybe we can talk about love later. First, tell us where you are going. That's what Peter is interested in. He says, Jesus, if you're leaving, then we want to go with you. Peter is not particularly interested in following Christ if Christ is going to be physically absent. He didn't think that was part of the deal. But Jesus replies and reaffirms to Peter that where he is going, Peter cannot come, at least for now. Later on, yes, after God's purposes are fulfilled for Peter on earth, then yes, Peter will join Jesus in heaven, but not yet. However, Peter is still not happy with this answer. So he asks in verse 37, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. In other words, Peter says, nothing can stop me from following you, Jesus. No matter where you go, nothing can hold me back. You will not leave me and I will not stop following you even if it kills me. Now, this is a massive amount of confidence, isn't it? This is a massive amount of self-confidence. Okay, so this is my annual reminder. Maybe some of you guys haven't heard yet, but football has begun. And um, very likely for the next few months, a lot of my sermon illustrations are going to be related to football. I'm sorry, it's just who I am. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose the family I grew up in. Okay, so forgive me. So, here's what this means. Because a lot of the sermon illustrations are going to be about football, the more you know about football, the more you will know about the sermons, and thus the more you will know about God's Word. <laughs> so this is a divine reason to watch football as much as you can. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> You're welcome. One of my favorite accounts on social media is a Twitter account called Freezing Cold Takes. Freezing Cold Takes. The Twitter handle is at Old Takes Exposed. And what the author of this, uh, of this account does is he searches the internet and he searches other sports media web pages in order to find predictions made by sports reporters and sports commentators. And when he finds past predictions that prove to be egregiously wrong... He then retweets them or highlights them on his Twitter feed. For example, in July of 2016, Max Kellerman, one of the talking heads on ESPN, he has a show called First Take. Kellerman said this, quote, Tom Brady is just about done. Could be the next game he plays, could be a year from now, but he is going to fall off a cliff Tom Brady is going to be a bum 
in short order. That was July of 2016. Okay, so since Kellerman made that confident declaration, Brady has now won, count them, three Super Bowls, including two Super Bowl MVP awards. So for Kellerman to say in 2016 that Brady's about to fall off a cliff and become a bum, that, my friends, is a freezing cold take. And there are many others like it that the freezing cold take Twitter account finds from across the sports reporting world. Old takes, old predictions, confident declarations that eventually get exposed. Well, man, oh man, if there was a freezing cold takes Bible edition, then this scene would easily qualify. Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus immediately counters in verse 38, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow before you deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. Before the night is even over, before the rooster sounds the alarm for a new day, Peter is not only unwilling to die for the Lord, he even denies knowing the Lord at all. Three times. But just a few hours earlier, back here in chapter 13, Peter is amazingly self-confident. And the self-confident follow the flesh. What we mean by the flesh is that Peter, in his self-confidence, he's reliant on his own strength. He's reliant on his self. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says about Peter here, quote, Tragically, the boast that Peter would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, this boast displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but it also displays a certain haughty independence that is the seed of his eventual denial. So in Peter's self-confidence, he's unaware. Peter lacks self-awareness. He's unaware of his weakness. And he's operating independently under his own power, not relying on God's grace to sustain him. Much of the conservative culture that we live in, much of the conservative culture that we live in values taking responsibility for yourself, working hard for what you earn, and cultivating a kind of self-sufficiency that you can make it on your own so that you won't have to rely on others. And there's a lot of good in that. It's good to take responsibility. It's good to work hard. It's good to not give in to a victim mentality. However, these same values can also create a kind of individualism and arrogance that betrays who we really are. And it betrays the way God designed us. Church, we are creatures 
We are creatures made to rely on God and His strength in us. We are just human. Furthermore, we are broken creatures. We are sinful humans. We are in need of God's grace to cover us. We are in need of God's grace to empower us for discipleship to Jesus. We cannot make it on our own. We cannot rely on ourselves. We need God, and hear me, we need God's people. That's the one that's tough for us. A lot of us in conservative cultures, a lot of us in Lapeer County, we're willing to say, yeah, I need God. Yeah, I need God. But are you willing to say, I need God's people? I need to submit my life to God's people. I need to open my life to God's people. Because this is where God is. Amongst his people. It's no good if we stop short of that. Peter has this can-do attitude. Peter has this zeal and passion. But what Jesus is exposing is this undercurrent of self-confidence. I call it an undercurrent because if we would have seen Peter's life, we'd have said, yeah, he's a Christian. Yeah, he's following Jesus. Look at him. He's the apostle Peter. I mean, come on. That's why I say Peter has this undercurrent of self-confidence, this undercurrent of arrogance that we are all in danger of. So church, let's check our ego at the door. Let's humble ourselves before the cross. Let's humble ourselves before one another. And let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Christ followers are to be known by our love for one another. The self-interested follow Satan. The self-confident follow the flesh. But there's a third way. Shows up in verses 31 and 32. The God-centered follow Jesus. The God-centered follow Jesus. So we're, we're backing up a little bit in the story. Before Peter made his freezing cold take, right after Judas takes the bread from Jesus and leaves to betray him, in between those two scenes, Jesus says these words in verses 31 and 32. He says that the time is now. Now that my betrayer has left to go get my crucifiers, the time is now for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this title, Son of Man, it was Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man well over 75 times. By comparison, that's twice as much as Jesus is called the Son of God. But this title, the Son of Man, it refers to prophecies from the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, Daniel describes a vision that he received. This vision in which, quote, one like a Son of Man came to God, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man was presented before God, and to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So Daniel is describing here a coronation ceremony. The Son of Man who is exalted to heaven, he then receives the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus says, that's me. 
I'm the Son of Man who will be glorified. And he's saying that the time of my glorification has come. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. But what's amazing and confounding is that the path of the Son of Man's glorification includes the cross. Yes, he will be glorified by being lifted up to his heavenly throne, but first he will be glorified by being lifted up on a cross. Yes, he will be glorified with the honor and praise of heaven, but first he will go through the the disgrace and shame of the cross. This was part of God's plan that tripped up the disciples. Even Jesus' own disciples, they were scandalized. They were perplexed that the Messiah's glorification would include his crucifixion. No, they would have said. The Christ is glorified, not crucified. Jesus is saying, yes, the Christ is to be glorified. And a part of his glorification is his humiliation. On the cross. Let me give you an example of this from playing sports with my children, especially our two boys. Oftentimes they'll ask me, Dad, how come you can throw a football so well? Or how come you can hit a golf ball so far? Or any other number of activities that I can do way better than them. They're only six or eight, so it's not that big a deal. But I am trying to like, make the most of it before they eventually you know, get better than me. But they'll often ask me these questions, Dad, how come you're so good? They'll often ask me these questions with discouragement, with frustration, because when I do one of these things, to them, it looks so easy. But then they try, and they can barely throw the ball five feet, or they can barely get the ball off the tee box. And so they get frustrated, and they want to quit. And so I tell them, and they've almost started to predict when I say this, like they can see the words coming out of my mouth before I actually say them, but I tell them, buddy, you got to practice you got to be bad before you can be good. In other words, you've got to experience the humility of practice before you can experience the glory of excellence. And that's what the disciples don't get. The Messiah could not just come to earth and claim his kingdom. No, he had to come to earth and die for his kingdom. His glorification includes his humiliation. The disciples don't want that. They want immediate glory and they want to define glory on their own terms. And according to their terms, glory would never include the cross. But Jesus, the Son of Man, He is centered on God. And he is centered on God's plan and God's purpose for his life. The disciples are discouraging him. Satan is distracting him. But Jesus is dead set on what God has for him, even though it includes the cross. And church, this is what God is calling us to. A God-centered approach to life. We don't live life For ourselves, like Judas. And we are not confident in ourselves, like Peter. We are reliant on God. We are trusting in God, in His will, in His path, even though it includes death to self, denial of self, just like 
Jesus experienced on the cross. So we must ask ourselves, are you living for yourself like Judas? Are you relying on yourself like Peter? If so, for you, it is not too late. Cry out for mercy. Embrace the cross where we find grace and glory. How can you tell who you follow? How can people tell that we follow Jesus? Is it a special tattoo that we each get? Thankfully not for me. Is it even a particular religious activity like church attendance or tithing? No, Jesus says the world will know that you are my disciples. The outside world will identify you as my followers by the way you love each other. So I call on us now, church, let's repent of our selfishness. Let's repent of our self-reliance and let's center our lives on God and his purpose for us and Let's love each other just as he sacrificially loved us. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.